0: To the Green Majority here on CIUT eighty nine point five FM. Oh man, what a busy few weeks it is! Uh, it's been it's been pretty busy, but the things there's just so much going on, folks. That uh, it's uh, we can't rest. No rest for the wicked. Mm-hmm. I've got Stefan uh, Hustetter and Kevin Farmer in the studio with me, as well as today's special guest, who's Michael laverne who's going to be talking about his book and a bunch of other stuff as well. Fixing Fashion uh, coming up later in the program as well. We'll also be talking about, uh, among other things. Um, A little bit of Paris talks and other just general Paris stuff. Uh, There's been some really, I don't want to tease it too much, but there's uh, Mm. Naomi Klein wrote a very interesting article uh, relating some of the security issues uh, and the climate talks, which I'm very eager to talk about uh, later in the show as well. Also, a a story that just sort of just seemed like I couldn't resist just it's it's to me, uh, which was off planet mining bill. (laughs) Uh, As U.S. Congress seeks to privatize outer space. We'll be talking about that later. We also have a phone call from a listener, which is always awesome. I will be repeating the call in line a little bit later as well. Uh, A bunch of other important news. Uh, But first, we are joined right here live in studio. I can see him. He's right in front of me, Michael Laverne from Fixing Fashion. Welcome to the show. morning. Thank you so much for the invitation. Uh, so the first thing I would like to do, of course, your, your book is called Fixing Fashion. It is about your experience in the fashion industry. It's, a, mm. it's in a little way a, a partially a, almost a history book as well. Might be might be fair as well as a, sure. a combination of your experience and just historical stuff about the apparel industry. Uh, mm. But before we dig into uh, what types of things are in the book, tell me a little bit about you. What's, your, what's the experience and expertise you bring to this topic? Sure. Well, um Gosh, I, I fell into the industry
1: completely by accident. Uh, certainly had no interest or intention to uh, start running around the world for global brands and retailers and uh, help them exploit workers in third world countries and so forth. But uh, having uh, left UFT in the prime of my youth and gone off to uh, bum around Mexico for a couple of years and backpack around the region, I picked up some Spanish language skills. Uh, that came in quite handy at just the uh, launch of NAFTA late 1994, early 1995. Uh, came back to Canada after bumming around Latin America for a couple of years, and uh, started working with a small office here in Canada that was promoting trade and development with Spain. Uh, and I was just looking to keep my Spanish language skills up. Really, had no other uh, intention to get involved in business too much. My own studies here at UFT had been in political science and international relations. Uh, And I kind of had an idea about doing something in journalism or writing. Uh, And really it led into a a very right place, right time opportunity. Uh, An organization based in Asia wanted to set up a buying office in Mexico and had no clue about the local language or culture. Uh, And little did I know at the time that this organization ended up being the uh, exclusive buying agent for Walmart stores out of the U.S., Uh, And so I was kind of thrown into the industry or jumped in with two feet, if you will, um, from the start of my career working for the largest uh, retail group in the world. And it was quite an eye-opening experience going down to Mexico with very rudimentary Spanish skills in the mid-90s and setting up from scratch a buying office uh, and getting an indoctrination really into how that, that industry worked. And then I've spent the last 20 years now to 80% of the time living and working offshore with my family throughout Latin America, South Asia, Middle East, uh, setting up first very commercially oriented uh, projects focused on supply chains. But the more and more time I spent inside the industry, the less and less comfortable I was uh, with my role in it. And, of course, spending a lot of time on the ground, in country, in factories, uh, is a very unique perspective to how the industry works. And, and really what I've tried to do is use my own experience, which is a very narrow slice of the total um, world of consumer goods, if you will, uh, and looked at the very particular social, community, and environmental impacts of the industry, how historically we arrived where we were, uh, and also step back to think a bit and say this is a you know, much broader issue than particularly textiles. This is one person's experience and story, but it's representative of a whole range of manufacturing industries uh, that, you know, we didn't lose, but people in industry particularly decided to relocate. Right? So this was really my way of kind of walking through that experience and uh, my own journey to the other side of uh, of the table, if you will, and working on sustainability and uh, uh, human risk issues.
2: Mm.
0: One of the... One of the biggest things that I've uh, found when we're looking at this, of course, uh, John Oliver covered uh, a a segment about uh, the apparel uh, industry recently that got uh, quite a lot of views and talking Mm -hmm. about some of the practices and child labor and stuff like that. Can we can we talk about that a little bit about what are Mm -hmm. what are the actual types of practices that you were finding uh, objectionable? And and uh, and then in a minute, we'll talk about what we maybe can do about them.
1: Yeah, I would say if we look across the span of the last 20 years or so, which is when the apparel and textile industries really were driven uh, wholesale out of North America, uh, you know, only the latest in about a 300-year relocalization of textiles, having started first in, in the U.K. and then moved into <coughs> the United States and, and southern United States and offshore to, off to Latin America. Um, throughout that time, what we've ended up doing as an industry is – institutionalizing a lot of illegality and knowledge of illegality, uh, which we now call industry standard. But mm-hmm. industry standard in any industry doesn't necessarily mean it's, it's a legal standard or even a moral standard. It's simply one that industry has adopted. Right. It's, it's the hey, we all do it excuse. Yeah, it's trying to set, you know, as the industry did after a lot of mid-90s Uh, you know, sweatshop issues in Central America, uh, try to set voluntary standards against which they promise to behave. uh, But of course, they're not beholden to any law, which is really at the end of the day, uh, what will probably drive the most responsible business practices in in terms of offshore. But the the broad issues that we really deal with, let's say 70% of all offshore apparel factories, and I'm basing this on a pretty deep, you know, 20 years of experience of of doing this for quite a number of major brands. About 70% of factories have some level of what we'll call non-compliances, okay? Now, non-compliance means you don't meet either A, the brand's code of conduct standard, or sorry, A, or B, uh, the country's law for labor, health and safety, environmental, uh, and what have you. So through the process that factories have set up uh, with brands and retailers offshore, Labor auditing and social accountability auditing happens at the factory, but about 70% of facilities turn up issues that may be very minor or they may be very egregious, right? There's a broad range. But the real core issues we're struggling with offshore are typically based around uh, wages, working hours, uh, legal and mandatory benefits being met and paid within the country of production, uh, contrary to what a lot of people think, the, the laws in most offshore locations are actually quite robust. The issue is a law on paper versus actual implementation, right? And that's often where we see, uh, you know, a lot of gaps. But as as brands and retailers audit their factories and gain this awareness and documentary evidence and first-hand knowledge, they've put a system in place that allows those illegalities to continue under the guise of continuous improvement, right? while continuing to gain a financial benefit because of these gaps in standards and and legal practices. So this is really where we're focused on. Certainly, child labor is an issue. In very particular geographies, and farther back in the supply chain, like in textiles, where most brands and retailers don't even look, but at factory and sewing level, the real issues are based around getting paid for the average sixty-five-hour work a week that you do work, getting your legal benefits, uh, and not being undercut all the time while working within a, you know, a relatively risk-free environment. Mm.
0: One of the, I think, really most interesting dynamics of that whole problem is the idea that um, there's a lot of willful ignorance, it seems, at a lot of steps. There's the willful ignorance of consumers who don't necessarily want to know why they can buy a shirt for $4. Uh, there's the willful ignorance of manufacturers who have these subcontractors, you know, which provides them plausible uh, deniability buffer. And, you know, when they get, when somebody gets caught or we have the, the, the numerous uh, factory collapses, uh, and stuff like that, they'll say, well, we were, we're just as shocked as you. Um, and then the people in those factories, there's plausible deniabilities because, you know, they'll shut down and maybe move people around and stuff. So mm. with so many problems to accountability, where do we start opening a door? Right? So if we, I mean, if we, let's say if we put pressure on, I don't know, just chosen a random Nike, mm. um, and they, they still have so many buffers of sort of plausible deniability, and I think they do have a bit of an argument in that I think it's true that a lot of people just really don't want to know. So right. how do we start to actually start dealing with these problems?
1: Yeah, I think you're right. I mean, the way I phrase it is, I don't believe that people don't care, but they often don't care to know. Right. Uh, and on, on one hand, I think there will always be a small percentage of the population that buys and consumes, let's say with awareness or, or, or ethically. I kind of equate it also to going to the supermarket and, and buying bananas you know, or to the pharmacy and buying my vitamins and my hair gel. I don't on my own have to question the legitimacy of the supply chain, the safety and health of those products, because there is a regulatory system in place to ensure everybody's playing by a level playing field and that risks are managed for the benefit of consumers. And The responsibility rests with the people who put the product on the marketplace, right? So I think the same holds true when we're talking about issues that impact uh, environments, whether they're ours or not. But if Canadian companies are aware of and have knowledge of things that happen in their supply chain, I think they should be responsible to ensure that they're – as much as possible within the systems that exist today uh, to screen out and weed out a lot of the negative social and community and environmental impacts and and make it a regulatory issue, much like the EU is now approaching it.
0: So one of the things that people have said, and actually uh, my co-host, uh, Stefan Huster, has said uh, on several occasions that in, in a lot of cases – and you were uh, referring to carbon uh, carbon pricing and stuff like that. But I think it applies here too, which is that at the end of the day, people are just eventually going to have to accept the fact that if we want to have um, ethical business where we're not you know, getting a deal so that we can ruin somebody else's life or, or, or put some foreign government that's weaker than a multinational corporation essentially at their – uh, pleasure because they have so much more power than the country and stuff like that. The people are just at the end of the day are just going to have to accept that they're go- not going to be able to get three dollar t shirts and that we're just going to have to pay more. Is that? Do you think that's correct or is there a medium here where we can really genuine not not do window dressing but actually improve these working conditions, make it fair, make it safe, make it ethical, and still have the benefits of you know multinational corporations that sell stuff for five bucks that should be fifty.
1: Yeah, well, I I do think the analogy is quite appropriate because much like carbon pricing or the the, the lack of true total cost pricing in oil or petroleum, uh, many consumer products are the same, right? We are being – our standard of living, our artificial standard of living is subsidized by the exploitation of people and environments half a world away. I mean, that's the reality of the economic system within which we currently live and have accepted to live, right? Mm. Now, there are pressures on business, I think, and, and by civil society to shift the perspective and not total paradigm shift, but rethink the role of business. Right? When we talk about cost, I like to look at two or three things. And the first thing is, why should all cost increases to ensure fair and equitable payment to workers uh, be passed along to consumers without the brand in the middle? You know, the average fast fashion chain earns a 55 gross margin. Uh, that's a pretty healthy margin to run a business on. Uh, so there is room to re-examine the equitable distribution of profit back into manufacturing and, and responsible payment. At the end of the day, you're investing in your own uh, brand, in your own uh, you know, reputation, and, and in your own livelihood. So I, I think when we think about costs, we have to restructure things a little bit and, and look at how we're managing that gap in the middle right that wh- what is the profit how is it being managed uh, how is it being distributed and the other thing is when we start to really break down and look at cost the costs that industry escaped from 20 or 30 years ago when they were manufacturing in the Ameri- you know, North America or in Western Europe, uh, we've gone through a cycle now of gaining visibility, right? The flip side of the negatives of globalization mean we do have, have better global communications, penetration and insight from people bravely around the world who put information forward, right? So as we now have taken 20 years to gain a full visibility of all those risks, right, that were moved offshore, and you now have to build in all of these additional costs to manage risk testing, auditing, supply chain compliance, new, new insurance risks, and so forth. Uh, you get pretty close to manufacturing back in North America. And there are quite a number of people in projects underway right now looking at how to do this specifically within textiles.
0: Mm. So, what do you think the immediate? Uh, what is something immediate, maybe that people could do? To you as in as far as like recommendations. So, uh, as far mm-hmm. as consumers, I mean, is it is it is it um, the the advised and best possible course of action to simply you know tell people not to shop at discount stores? Should they? Like, what's if? What's something people can actually do about this now? At least in their own lives.
1: Well, the sim- I guess the simplest thing is that you just really need to think before you you're, you're purchasing and consuming. Is it something you really need? Right. Uh, That's a very simple thing to say, but a lot of our consumption is driven by, you know, overconsumption of unneeded things. And the, and the second is to be aware. Just look at the brands and retailers you love. Uh, we're on the internet a lot of the day. Take 10 or 15 minutes. Look at their website. Do they have a CSR report? Do they break out any community commitments here or in their country of manufacturing? And if a brand or retailer has nothing to say on their website, then that's probably a question mark.
0: so one of the the thing I wanted to, to end on for this section as well Michael was uh, um, uh, the last thing I actually did before walking into the studio today was re- read the foreword of your book which mm-hmm. is uh, on the website people can take a look of it uh, you've actually been so kind as to let me know that you're going to be uh, offering up uh, a couple of copies sure, of your book we've
1: got a couple of copies to, read, to give away if anybody wants to call here
0: in just, uh, in just a moment so we'll, I'll give the number out in a second and people can, can call during the uh, the music break to, to grab one of those mm-hmm. um, but just about that opening chapter we're talking about sort of historically about really just sort of how far Back, this story goes. Do you want to? Do, can you just maybe summarize that that opening story about uh, you know how this almost all got uh, started in the first place with the in the father of the industrial revolution, as it were?
1: Yeah. Well, I think the industrial revolution itself was already a couple of hundred years into the start of global textile trade, and that was back into mercantilism and colonialism in the 15 and 1600s. The world's first global companies were. The British East India Company and the Dutch East India Company, right? And they, between them, divided up most of Asia and uh, kind of conquered their way to uh, economic dominance. Uh, And there are a lot of parallels looking at the history of how mercantilism and colonialism and slavery in the cotton trade and in the shipping industry led to the structure that's in place now. So, you know, history does tend to repeat itself, and there are a lot of things we can glean from looking off at the past and saying, "Whoa." Not a lot of things have actually changed. The technology has changed. The external presentation and organization of the fashion industry has changed. But behind the scenes, the global production, the exploitation of resources and people uh, have changed very slightly in very few degrees. All right.
0: I think that's absolutely fabulous place to to leave it. Uh, thank you again. We're speaking to Michael Laverne, who's the author of Fixing Fashion. Uh, Michael, I believe you're going to stick around uh, a little bit at least maybe, yeah, I'll be here, but uh, and sure join can. us in talking about some news. But uh, as we go to our music break here, if you are in the local uh, CIUT broadcast range, you will be able to call in right now at 416-946-7000. Uh, If you would like a free copy of Michael's book, Fixing Fashion, we only have, I believe, two. We'll give away one now because I don't want to overload Jason in there who's working the phone. So first caller now gets one, and we'll give one away Mm -hmm. during the second uh, music break as well. So, again, 416-946-7000 if you'd like a free copy of Michael's book. Very kind of you, Michael. Thanks so much. We're going to go to our music break now here. Jason, uh, are you ready to tell us what we're going to listen to uh, if I buy you three seconds? One-one-thousand, (laughs) two-one-thousand. There we (laughs) go.
3: Can you hear me? Yeah, yeah, there we go. Uh, yeah, I was going to pay a little respect to uh, the late Ron Hines who just passed away two days ago. So, uh, yeah, this is a Sonny's dream.
4: Sonny lives on a farm, on a wide open space. You could take off your shoes and give up the race. You could lay down your head by a sweet river bed, but Sonny always remembers what it was his mama said. Oh Sonny, don't go away. I am here all alone. You're dying He's a sailor who never comes home All these nights get so long And the silence goes on And I'm feeling so tired Not all that strong Sonny carries a boat Though he's barely a man There ain't all that to do Still he does what he can And he watches the sea From a room by the stairs And the waves keep on rolling They've done that for years and for years Oh, sonny, don't go away I am here all alone Your daddy's a sailor Who never comes home all these nights get so long The silence goes on And I'm feeling so tired Not all that's strong. Sonny's dreams can't be real they're just stories he's read They're just stars in his eyes They're just dreams in his head And he's hungry inside
0: For the wide world outside Come back in. And, I'm and we're alive here on CIUT 89.5 FM you're listening to the green majority i am your host darren kaster sitting in the studio with our guest from the previous section who's going to stick around and uh, pr- might throw a couple comments in michael laverne kevin farmer and Stephen Hostetter also in the studio uh i also want to take this opportunity to mention uh, just quickly before we get into some uh, some vote for the new submissions and we actually have a call we're going to play from uh, from a listener as well uh that this is a very special episode stefan because this is our first uh officially extended podcast version so if yeah. you're listening live on the radio uh there's still good cause to go and uh subscribe to the podcast as well because we will uh we've been testing it a little bit doing it here and there uh but we will now consistently be doing an after show so if you're not a podcast listener you should become one uh because you're missing out if you don't wow. we'll say that uh also some other fun stuff we have a video that's coming out an animated yeah, video today. coming out this uh, today as well that's talking about that as well uh, so that'll be on the homepage of greenmajority.ca there's a whole bunch of stuff numerous reasons many reasons uh to go to greenmajority.ca one of which which i will uh i'll let Stefan start with one of them as well was Vote for the news. Mm-hmm. Um, so, what uh, do you want to start with? Maybe the Exxon.
3: Sure thing. Uh, so, this is the ongoing story from from uh, about the heat is building on Exxon uh, from for their climate lie basically uh and i mentioned this a bit last week and i think it's 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 still going and i'm still i'm still impressed i I remain impressed that this that this this story still has legs of course it is the uh is the fact that exxon and it's in the in the article itself it it calls it perhaps one of like the most like world-changing lies uh or like the most world destroying lies uh in which exxon basically knew about climate change in the mid-70s Really, actually, as as Kevin mentioned last week, like really knew exactly they they were remarkably accurate at what would be <laughs> happening, uh, and then just basically said, "Eh, what if we didn't do that and made billions of dollars instead?"
0: Can I can I read my favorite quote from the yes. article about that? Okay, so th- this was a I, this is a quote from uh, a, a congressman, I believe, uh, uh, in the U.S. of the U.S. Securities and Exchange Commission, uh, referring to the investigation of Exxon financial disclosures. This quote is awesome quote security laws are very clear corporations can lie but they cannot lie
3: on their security filings end quote <laughs> <laughs> that's know, business as usual yeah exactly. uh, that's awesome <laughs> um, and and so i think the part of it i want to i, I want to bring back to this is i guess is actually just the sort of it's I I want to know what our end game is here. Like, what what is the best case scenario of these probes? We get Exxon to admit that they that they lied. Uh, they give us a billion dollars, which you know is probably about you know one percent of their of their net revenue for uh, in you know for the quarter. And then and then they carry also, on. Also, and less than one percent of well, the value of the damage they've done. Too, I would argue. I would argue that number is much much higher. Oh, I don't think. Well, I, I don't. I, I I think you could basically public. You could basically take like, the U.S. government could take over Exxon and just make all the money Exxon is making for the rest of the time Exxon makes money, and it still would not cover the amount of damage that not dealing with climate change thirty years ago. Can
0: we start? Uh, ha- and there's no chance it will happen. But just because it will make so many people's heads explode, can we start uh, hashtag uh, nationalize Exxon? <laughs>
1: <laughs> well, are they just now the poster child for this, though? I mean, what makes them any – just because they're more egregiously worse than the majority of other – of the majors?
3: Well, I think that's what I find so interesting about this, is that, is that if – would they be let off if they just hadn't done the research? Like if, if 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 everyone else was telling them, but if they just hadn't done the research themselves, and I know they you know they technically you know they did lie in specific guidelines, and, and maybe that's what the change that they broke the law by not actually disclosing this information. But when it comes to corporations just not being honest about the damage their product does, that's every corporation ever. Yeah, just, so uh, let's let's set set some legal precedent and go after global arms trade. right? Yeah. <laughs> well, yeah so that's so I, I i'm interested to see where this goes uh because like you know we had bp just basically destroy the gulf coast and we got a couple we, you know they got a measly sum they, they all the headlines were largest record ever and then the more you went into it like they got a massive tax break for giving the money to like, it's like we destroyed the Gulf Coast and then got a tax break for the money to help clean it up. Yeah. Like, mm-hmm. I just don't, I have no faith that this, that any moment, like, I, I like that the problems are happening, keeps in the news, keeps us talking about it, sure. Uh, but I just do not think that the federal, that any government has the ability to make Exxon pay enough money to make this valuable. Uh,
5: I'd like to, hi, everyone. <laughs> um, I always like to remind everyone of a quote from Ray Anderson, which is that corporations will behave as badly as the law allows. Full stop. They will. They'll just do it. Yeah. And to the, the ex- intro. Yeah. Well, and to the extent, though, that people might want to make the argument that those that um, those those sorts of nefarious optimizations of their their uh, process come be- are being imposed on them by legitimate competition in the marketplace. To the extent that that's true, I mean, then there's a role for government for regulation. You've you've uh,
0: actually just done the best argument ever for (laughs) regulation. You're like, great, we'll just raise the floor so everybody has to follow it and problem solved. Trevor Burrus, junior
5: Don't let me forget you said that because I want to make a comment about that and I'm I'm old. Um, But the other thing too is that, and we know it's not just only uh, the needs of being competitive in the marketplace. There's a lot of simply pathological acquisitiveness in corporations and they it's not simply that they're trying to out compete they're also trying to they're just being greedy and takers and 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 again there's a role for government in that there's a role for there's a role for regulation and 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 audits in their practice and, and a role for like actual labeling that that covers you know more than just you know cursory comments on the ingredients that are in our products but you know some sort of rating system that says how sustainably was this produced? How ethically was this produced with regards to, you know, the exploitation of, of people and the environment and so on? And this thing you said about, what did you just say? <laughs> I already forgot You've it. just made the best argument for regulation, raise the floor and everybody. For everyone, exactly. Look what happened when people had to employ workers uh, when con- when when corporations were still sort of located within the geographical boundaries of countries, yeah, they had to employ people in those countries, and the existing sort of social um, uh, connections of of everyone being in a country, sort of living in one sort of political jurisdiction, had a balancing effect. There was you know unions and collective bargaining and organization and things like that. There there is. You know, without go- without going into too many of the details, but overall, writ large, there's there's sort of a balancing effect there because people can can you know, have the means to to fight back against exploitative uh, 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 treatment. Mm. What did what did they do? They negotiated all this, and the, here here come the scare quotes: uh, free trade <laughs> agreements that let them flee these national boundaries. And writ large, I think if we let this horrible process go on long enough, like you can't escape the planet, at least not yet. I know you're excited about this mining thing, but, um, you know, eventually it would, you know, globally, we just end up with the same sort of balancing uh, act. Like, you know what I mean? Like I think, I think overall people will only put up with this for so long. Hmm. E- eventually we would just see acted out on the global stage, the same thing that got acted out, you know, regionally within existing jurisdictions before these corporations were able to just flee the confines of the countries where they can sell their goods to exploit workers in other countries but who wants to wait for that <laughs> if, if there's if there's an, if if there's a better outcome and in fact it might even be inevitable anyway mm-hmm. you know, again I, there's there's
3: a, there's a role there's a role to intervene in the in the behavior oh. of these well, these corporate countries i think, and i think what's so interesting about that is when you see the when you see corporations actually see the writing on the wall like that uh, and if the corporations actually thought that this was going to be uh, w- w- was about to ha- was imminent, uh, you'd see what happened here when we started d- when 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 the Ontario government came in hard against coal, which was there was moments before we actually closed all the coal plants that coal plants were begging to be regulated. They were like, <laughs> please, please regulate us. Regulate us like, as
5: we're we're all about as carbon as pricing now too, right? Yeah, so yeah. That, you know, because that'll that'll get you know it with for
0: for want of carbon pricing, that's why no one wanted Keystone XL. <laughs> so I was actually I was uh, having nothing to do with the show just for my own uh, yes. side business. Uh, I was filming an event the other day with it was a guy... Uh, I won't throw him under the bus because he's not here to defend mm. himself, but uh, <coughs> it was an anti-globalization thing, which... Um, anyway i wasn't i wasn't in total agreement with some of the stuff but i was just being hired to film it so that's fine uh but one of the things was there was that so people some of the people that was there to see the show was like blah blah, blah and i said uh, you know what the problem isn't global the the problem with globalization is not globalization the problem with globalization was that corporations globalized first and nobody else has so now they can run amok with nobody to monitor them uh and the person who was there to see this event kind of went oh yeah that's kind of a better way to put it isn't it uh but that's sort of yeah, what we're talking about society which is society that is has not yet caught yeah up in 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 wait, practice there's no problem as a nation without, you know... <laughs> well, exactly. That's, the, that's <laughs> the problem is that until we figured out how to do that, that. Right. perhaps we're, we shouldn't have allowed things like multinational corporations that uh, by definition are, are going to have more authority, power, influence, and everything else than any government can possibly do. Uh, maybe we shouldn't have let the them case, do it until right. nobody else can. That's, right?
1: a, that's already the case. I mean, having yeah. spent a good you know, 15 of my 20 years working for some of these nasty global corporations, yeah. you know, what surprises a lot of people, maybe outside of the direct academic and trade circle, is that Governments themselves aren't the one who negotiate these managed trade agreements. Right? It's, it tends to be industry groups mm. between themselves, multinationally, pre-negotiating conditions and presenting them to government as mm-hmm. options. Right? So look at the area of corporate diplomacy. All of that has now been outsourced to industry. Right? Mm. So we, we've lost. We are continuing to lose. But the, the nation state is what's really under siege. right? And, and mm-hmm. the, we've gone to the extreme of individualism. In some ways, and that's driven us to be, you know, completely unattached to anything meaningful at the national level. So you're losing north-south-east-west discussions, and now we're a collection more of, you know, urban elite clusters around the world, and everybody else is no man's land, right? Because what you get is now this have-have-not, the urban elite centers are really managing the finances and everybody else is just structured to service those central elites. Well, I Elizabeth
5: Elizabeth I don't know if Elizabeth Warren coined this uh, comment but I certainly heard it from her was that uh, uh, if if you if you don't have a seat at the table, it's probably because you're on the menu. Yeah. And and this was with respect to the TPP negotiations, which uh, it, now people activists have railed against the secrecy of these agreements. And there, you need to make a distinction here. No one's no one's saying, "Hey, we, you have to negotiate this agreement, uh, posting it line by line on social media for us to review." That's not the that's not the level of disclosure. The secrecy that people are railing about against are the legitimate. Uh, 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 criticism of the secrecy was that most people didn't know this agreement was being negotiated at all, <laughs> and it's and it's it's vast, it's it's mm-hmm. a vast, unprecedented uh, agreement in in its size. And who was at the table? About six hundred uh, corporate lawyers and lobbyists, the the representatives from twelve the twelve governments who who plan to be and maybe that number's gone up by now, but who plan to be signatories of this mm-hmm. agreement. Who wasn't at the table? Anyone else? Anyone representing human rights? Anyone in, representing now, labor, society, yeah, environment? Right. So these were the people who did not have a seat at the table. And if you think that these these government negotiators, I mean, just look at the history of these agreements. Right. If you think they're nearly uh, up to able to um, negotiate. Uh, with with sort of a with an equal balance of uh, power at the table with like 600 corporate lobbyists who like you say come fully prepared mm, <laughs> to to mm. deal with this and and it, there's certainly and it, and and government has just not shown I mean we we can't expect government representatives to be experts on everything we we expect we expect our representatives to have the sense to consult with experts and and for and to that extent if you're going to go to and sit down with 600 Corporate lawyers and lobbyists from the biggest corporations on the planet, uh, and not bring experts in environmental uh, issues and human rights issues and, and and labor issues and things like this. Well, it just I, I agree I agree wholeheartedly with that comment. And everyone else is simply on the menu at that point.
0: All right, uh, before we get to uh, too close to our second music break, I want to we had a perfect segue there actually. And uh, before we get too far away from it, I want to play to uh, the listener call who had a comment uh, along similar lines so we'll play that and we'll come back uh, just a quick call from one of our listeners in case uh, you would like to do that i will tell you right now as well uh but on the very uh, similar topic so we'll just play that and then we can have a quick comment uh, on that before we go to the break so if you also have something you'd like to say you can call in leave a message at one 736 3921 or just go to the website and look at the contact us page and has the phone number there uh, posted so here is someone who called in yesterday
6: Hello Green Majority, my name is Mr. Mirza, longtime CIUT listener here, who is hoping to no longer lurk in the shadows. You're right, the world has gone bonkers, in my humble opinion, communities have misappropriated their understanding of value, as in, what is valuable to us, as individuals and as a collective, and why? Do we like to eat? You bet we do! Do we also need a hundred million products and services streaming to us at all times? Right this second, should we sacrifice our natural bounty and abusively gather resources to meet those needs? Um, We have already altered the way we measure value in a way that one day I fear future generations will look back on this as a fault of grand proportions. Everyone needs to eat, to drink clean water, to be safe and sheltered around a community that helps them grow and feel fulfilled. Can we provide this indefinitely, given the present structure of our economy and growing population? Who cares? Let's just do what we can right now and let someone else worry about it. No, sustainable design and a holistic approach can do a ton to help us get back on track. But, and, oh, wait a minute. Well, what do I know? I'm sure there's a PR team out there somewhere that can keep everyone much better informed. Anyways, thanks for the time. Cheers.
0: All right. So thank you uh, for the call. And if you would like to call, uh, again, the, the information is on the website on the contact us page, has the phone number. Um, but yeah, I mean, just generally uh, talking about that idea of uh, the people, you know, want to, uh, I think, want to ask these questions and then are very easily distracted when something comes along. Uh, you know, I'm very interested. Ooh, a $2 shirt. You know, <laughs> it's very, cu- very quickly uh, sort of goes out the window uh, on that as well. So thank you for your comment as well. And if you would like to comment, you can do that two. Uh, we're going to go to our break in just a moment as well. Um, and what we're going to talk about when we come back, I just want to, uh, I want to spend a little bit of time on as well, which is the, of course, cop coming up. Um, and there's a variety of angles having to do with the uh, attacks and security and that whole geopolitical situation as well. So we're going to deal with that in just a moment when we come back. But first... Jason is going to tell us what our second music break is. Oh, and of course, sorry, before we talk to Jason as well, uh, if you would like, uh, we still have one copy available of the book as well. So if you would like a copy of Michael Laveran's Fixing Faction, you can call 416-946-7000 right now and uh, you'll get a copy. Jason, what are we going to listen to?
6: Well, I like
3: to, I like to play a bunch of different things and keep it uh, like a – not not play uh, favorites to like male artists and female artists so here's a female artist i know from back home she's she's great got a great sense of humor and a great voice so this is her and her band burrows and their song hygienicide Welcome back to the Green Majority. This is Steven Osteter pretending to be Darren Gaester. I don't know why I dropped my voice an octave for that. Hi, Seven. How you doing? I'm going to put my voice up now just to confuse people. All right. Now we're being really weird. Uh, okay. So uh, to get into the next one, uh, another vote for the news option, I believe. Yes. Uh, which, and we,
0: we, although we would have done this anyway.
3: Yeah, of course. Yeah, actually, yes. Uh, it's, what, kind of, what kind of environment show does not talk about our, you know, I feel like I was going to say our last great hope, but I feel like I've said that so many times it's lost all meaning. I don't know. I'm not sure if I'm not sure if every time something like this comes around, I can keep saying it's our next. Like at some point, uh, at some point we're out of hope, right? Well, well, you know, Kevin Farmer last week uh, said he had no use for hope, so perhaps, uh, so perhaps. Well, and we 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 agreed that what he meant by that was no
0: use for hope in place of action. Mm. Yeah, uh, you can you can you can have hope, but it's like whipped cream. You don't need a bowl of whipped cream. As long as you've got ice cream, you can have some whipped cream. It's right. like a shorter Star Wars. <laughs> you're, you're a last hope, Obi Wan Kenobi. Kaboom! The whole thing blows up. Shorter hey, Star Wars. I, I already, <laughs> I, I,
3: this may be this may be a little intense because I also have a Star Wars thing coming up. We have so many Star Wars things. Yeah, uh, but yeah. So, anyways, um, the as as everyone knows the. Uh, the climate, uh, the massive climate Paris, which has been talked about for almost now, I guess even a year, uh, about a year now, a year and a half. Has well, been try twenty one. Like, That's how long we've been at this. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> we, have, we got to twenty one. Like, can you imagine if any other problems had like we, with the twenty first meeting to try to solve something? It's like at some point you gotta. be the U.S. are not trying that hard. You're can, just not trying. Can somebody just start the meeting by going
0: blackjack? All right, we were just kidding. Deal.
3: <laughs> that would be yeah. I, no. I don't think that'd work. only really no. work. I'm gonna say. I like the joke. Does Maybe,
0: like- you know what? If Ang- anglo Merkel did that, I bet a few people would be like, all right, well. All right. <laughs> I
5: liken this to, you know, being on a sinking ship and everyone's standing around scheduling a meeting for... <laughs> To decide how much water everyone's going to bail <laughs> um okay i'm going to bail this much because that's what suits me politically and economically and and w- we'll discuss this we'll make a we'll, we'll have an agreement in principle to meet you know at the end of this year and divvy up how much all of us are going to bail well
3: how much all of us agree to bail won't agree be, to bail won't exactly be, won't be binding we don't yeah, it's it's non-binding bailing yeah. And, yeah um but anyways uh so the the part of this conversation actually that's that's a little more interesting because again we can talk about the failures of the of the meetings forever uh, is well two parts of it actually I think Uh, one is of course the impacts of the of the of the terrorist attack in Paris uh, on on the on, 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 on the climate deal uh, or on, on the working towards the climate deal. And the second is sort of a, a larger discussion of the role of climate mitigation in peace efforts generally. Mm. Uh, and, and there's sort of, there's sort of two, so the more specific one of course is that, uh, in the wake of the of the terrorist attacks, there are, they are banning protests, uh, in large gatherings around, around Copenhagen, uh, or they're not coming On cop 21. um, and so you can tell how long we've been at it. I this. know exactly. Just <laughs> naming also, my past Yeah, presence.
5: and if it's another Copenhagen, that's that. that I think that's, I think that was a Freudian slip. Yes. Copenhagen
0: <laughs> was like the last greatest uh, cop disaster. And yeah. we're just yeah. Liam's another yeah. one? Um, the the most interesting angle about this, and the the thing I wanted to jump right in. So right now we're referencing off a Naomi Klein article. It will be linked on the the show post later. But the, there's one really 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 vital thing that I want to zero in sort of right out of the gate here, which is that. What happened essentially, you know, during the financial collapse and all sorts of things, there have been all sorts of other things that have come up and, you know, at the last minute, every time it seemed like we might get something, it seemed like something happened that got people distracted. And I think the message here needs to be not uh, global quote unquote terrorism is not, you know, not a concern. It's that the number one way to deal with it is also to take a rational uh, stance on climate. And that's the idea is that this deal is a way to bridge and broker peace. Uh, and I think the, the people whose heads would explode when hearing that, uh, any of you, you know, maybe there's a couple of our listeners that, that think so. Maybe somebody who's not used to listening to this program mm-hmm. and just tuned in whose head's exploding right now when I say that. but. You know, I mean there's so many ways to get into it, and we'll we'll sort of each contribute a few, but the first two that pop into my head, which is one, which is first of all, dropping everything and bombing the crap out of Syria is the number one way to generate more quote unquote extremists, and is exactly what ISIS wants you to do. They've said so. They're like, please make this a war, cultural war. That's what we want because that's how we get resources. So first of all, that's a stupid thing to do anyway. But second of all is that a lot of the reasons, and we've talked about this previously on the show, uh, for this, among other things, among uh, you know American and Canadian uh, foreign policy failures, uh, was that a massive drought caused by climate change is one of the reasons why there's so much instability in that country in the first place. Not exclusively the only one, of course, but one of the major contributing factors. And if we lose sight of that in time for this agreement... It's not just about, you know, we didn't get what we wanted because the world was focusing on something else. This is also the, the, one of the most effective ways to deal with that is to stop bombing people and start helping the good guys. <laughs> and, and start making friends there instead of creating more and more enemies. Just bombing the, the crap out of the Middle East is not going to solve anything and it will distract us from dealing with climate change, which is going to hurt everybody again later anyway.
5: I don't know. It's, it's, it's hard to argue with success. <laughs> so, you, 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 you stick with what's working. And <laughs> I, you know and and there's the question of like when do you stop throwing good bombs after bad right, <laughs> and maybe maybe the next one will be the magic bomb that hmm. that bombs the Middle East into stability <laughs> so i I can see why
0: you know it's hard to you know, change our behavior. Yeah. There's a bunch of young earth creationists that like to uh, try and mock evolution by saying you couldn't, if you, uh, you know, uh, it's a, it's a mock, very poor uh, understanding of evolution. But what they'll say is very common is so they'll use the, uh, the, the twister through a junkyard thing. I uh, say, well, you know, you're, what you're telling me is that if I run a, a twister through a junkyard enough times, eventually afterwards, it will have built a completely perfect 747. Uh, so aside from the fact that that's a silly way to describe evolution, it is actually exactly Largely the same people who would make that argument who were saying, let's continue to bomb this part of the world. It's like, well, that's the same argument you're making. You're actually saying if we keep bombing this place, eventually we'll get a different result.
5: Syria was kind of a perfect storm for what you're talking about. Because like you said, there was about four or five years of, of what is uh, some, uh, sometimes referred to as mega drought that affected Syria. That drove as much as one and a half million Syrians off the land and into the cities. That's a big dislocation of people but it also eradicated their their incomes and their lifestyles and the the agricultural uh, like the farmers um it, like what happened was crops died and livestock died and these people their livelihoods were simply destroyed and they were driven off the land but they were also people that were doing quite well like these were people that were earning a good income for for the most part like writ large and they flooded the cities but at, at, so and that we can attribute at least to some degree to climate change, and we've got to ask ourselves, you know, why? Why do we want more of that? Why would we possibly be raising our risk of more of that around the world? And if you look at the climate model projections for Africa, um, what we're seeing in the Middle East, to the extent that we can trace these these influences to climate change, which we can, we're 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 looking at you know an order of magnitude at least worse at what we're what we're committing ourselves to in, in for Africa. But in Syria, also about you know as many as one and a half million sort of environmental refugees fleeing the the agricultural collapse met up with about one and a half million Iraqi refugees fleeing the devastation of that country, which we could you know parse forever. But um, let's admit it was illegal and ridiculous and 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 pointless, and it was it, and but it it, it, it it utterly destabilized that country. So you know again, so you you can you can. You don't have to look far to see how those very obvious large features met in Syria with as many as 3 million uh, environmental and, and Iraqi refugees uh, flooding the cities, um, where there was you know, high unemployment, there weren't enough services for everyone, the unrest grew, and there's all sorts of tensions. And of course, the Assad government wasn't interested in doing anything for uh, its people. And then this led to protests, which we, and here's the third thing that sort of, that factors into this, is that for two years before the civil war broke out, um, the, Syria was undergoing its version of the Arab Spring, and people were peacefully protesting, and they were being brutalized. Like, we were temporarily galvanized, it seems, by that picture of uh, Alan Kurdi lying dead on a beach. You couldn't show the pictures of, uh, of, of, of the, the dead children. That were being thrown on the sides of the roads in Syria during the uh, that that um, version of the of the Syrian version of the Arab Spring, you couldn't show them. You know, uh, they would not have. I mean, part of why that, that that picture was able to make the rounds in media was that it was painfully beautiful in a sense. And and I hope no one's offended by that. I w- was as upset by that photo as anyone. But I've seen these other photos. And they would not have made the rounds on media. And that was going on for and I could tell you more about what they were doing to these families. They were they were finding they were targeting the families of the people they thought were organizing these protests. And just I mean they were murdering them. Anyway, we ignored that for two years. So here you go. There's the regime change or let's bomb the world into stability approach, coupled with worsening climate change, coupled with, well, not our problem. And now we've got a world being roiled by this. And then, you know, uh, again, we, we, at the risk of sounding cold, we had a, a terrorist attack in Paris. Gruesome, horrifying, gut-wrenching stuff, but it just can't always be the case that there's something more important than talking about the climate crisis. And and once again, the mainstream media, it's not just that, it's not that this isn't newsworthy, it's that they're feasting on it. This has just dominated the news cycle endlessly since it happened, to the to the exclusion of other issues, including similar issues like the bombing in in Beirut, also carried out by ISIS, we don't care about Beirut, I guess. And it's not to create any sort of false equivalency or a scale of human suffering or anything like that. But you know, the mainstream media, you just got to get your head out of your Paris, um, <laughs> and we 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 just can't always have something more urgent than talking about climate change, or we're just you know, I mean, I just I just wait for the headline where the mainstream media goes, oh well, wow. we've just passed the point of no return with, with methane emissions from the Arctic. Should we have been talking about this before? Like, this, this is a thing now. I guess we should, you know, let's, let's, let's haul out the panelists.
3: Yeah, uh, and I want to. I, I have sort of I've a, I've a, a, a ramp to uh, back, back to the story to some extent in three things uh, that you I were, get you to. were waiting patiently. As, uh, the first one is just uh, the I almost see like monthly approximate reminder uh, of what the Pentagon thinks the largest threat to America is, or or, the, or basically largest threat to civilization is right now, uh, which is not globalized terrorism or international terrorism. It is climate change. Uh, What's it's climate change? Because it creates destability, which creates increase in this very exactly right. Exactly.
0: Right. exactly and they've um, known this for quite some time yeah exactly it's About, been years
5: since like 2002 they've been shortlisting
3: climate change on their short list of significant global threats yeah um, and and i think so like this is, that's, that's throwing that out there uh, the pentagon the it, it is is on board with you know maybe fighting climate change uh <laughs> and like like but the problem is you can't bomb climate change it's a problem uh but if we the, could there'd be such a war on climate change it'd be great oh, can we have a war on carbon? Sorry, go ahead. I was going to say, the, well, uh, the, the, there's a great line going around about how the, the war on drugs has increased drug proliferation, and the war on uh, the war on carbon has just increased uh, the war on terrorism, has increased more terrorism. Uh, so, can we have a war on jobs? And maybe that will actually. <laughs> um, but uh, but so, so what the gums do um, is what I find is interesting about the fact that all like a silent Paris because of the lack of uh, of demonstrations during this during this thing is a chance. And it's 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 an interesting chance for the world leaders to actually show they care uh and I don't think they necessarily will, but I think in a scenario where every you know you are going to be pressured and now you're just gonna walk into this weirdly eerie space um where you're basically set with no less than the task of 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 finding a way to, of, of a path towards saving the world um without that sort of pressure it's like well what you guys can like will you step up is really the question and i i it's 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 an interesting position to put the world leaders in because it's they're not going to be they're not going to be sort of running into protests every day they're going to be there it's going to be quiet uh and you know the, the 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 the, the groups have said they will not be silenced and have finding other more creative ways to have the other voice heard but still it's going to be a very very different atmosphere uh, and it's it'll be interesting to see how the world leaders actually step up uh, and the third part is if you don't actually think that they're going to do anything um, which I'm on the fence I think we'll get something it'll be non-binding and so who knows what that means um, but if uh, it comes down to the sort of thing that actually what the what the video that we're going to release later today is is, is really all about is the sort of understanding that our st- that that, the where the really interesting things are happening right now are not on the global scale. They're not on the, they're not on even on the, on on the provincial scale. They're on the municipal and local scale. Uh, And you're seeing all these small little interventions, all these small little like sort of anti sort of consumer, consumer culture obstructions we'll say um, that are fighting against this thing that that, that they are what I find so interesting. And they are the things that I think that if we can build the capacity out below this sort of massive global network, um, that's I think where to some extent where the where the where the hope lies for me, uh, and so the video that we're releasing today sort of talks talks to that. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I don't I, I know I'm sensitive time and I and I know you really want to talk about uh, about mining. So
0: well, I just I just want to mention it quickly because it's 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 sort of fun and there's a reason. I mean, it's I, I want to mention it because it's fun and we, as we said we, we intentionally try and balance you know covering things we have to cover and and having some sort of levity on the show. And I, I'm I'm continuously every week uh, shocked how what? how we manage to work in some levity into our show even I didn't if get that memo <laughs> even if it's mostly glib centered sort of uh, uh, humor but there's there's another relation here that i that i wanted to to make but before we leave the Paris topic behind i just my my final comment about that was there's absolutely two we, there's a lot of things we don't know what the right solution to dealing with uh you know, quote unquote global terror uh we don't know there's a lot of there, a lot of these are difficult problems we don't know but there's two things we know absolutely for sure absolutely undeniably certain that are true and one of them is that not dealing with climate change will make every form of violence and and destabilization worse. That is a fact. It's one directional. And two, not having a deal now is an absolute massive, massive potentially nail in the coffin setback. Mm-hmm. Those are two things we know that are factually true. And the third thing I would like to add that's not environment related as well is just on a public service announcement side of it, because I've been I've been really sort of shocked by what I've been seeing in social media. Um, every single person who tries to take out uh, some sort of rage, anxiety, or ignorance on random Muslim Canadians or random Muslims anywhere, um, congratulations, you are doing the number one thing that ISIS wants you to do. So congratulations for helping ISIS by being an ignorant fool. I just needed to say that today. So last minute, we're going to talk about off-planet mining just really briefly. What's interesting to me is that it's, uh, uh, it's <laughs> largely uh republican congress in the u.s is very very interested in in they seem very anti-nasa especially when uh, when they're talking about climate change they're the 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 largely republican uh um uh congress is also one of the biggest things who's trying to defund uh you know nasa all the time but suddenly somebody mentioned to them hey you know we might be able to mine asteroids like mining in outer space there's nobody to protest in outer space <laughs> <laughs> and i just i just love it how how they they seem so incapable and to me this is i mean i sort of think it's funny but i also think it's really like in, an indictment of of the american political system and believe me i'm not saying that we're any better up here but it's this particular thing is an indictment of the american political system because here's an extremely rare opportunity to say oh you mean you can think more than five seconds into the future it's funny how selective your ability to think more than five minutes into the future seems to be Uh, that is really all we're gonna have time for for me to get into though Uh, please read the article it's 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 interesting Uh, but that's really the comment i wanted to make but we are out of time unless you're listening to the podcast and then we're going to be right back so go ahead greenmajority.ca for all your news and to to get the full show but that's it for the green majority have a good green week everybody see y'all real soon Green Majority Program is also brought to you in part by some of our awesome members. Keep in mind, if you would like to support the climate cartoons and some of our other uh, non-radio activities, you can uh, support us by becoming a member. So uh, go to the homepage. There's a button that says, how can you help? There's a number of things you can do that are free. And then you can also become a member. Uh, that would be great. And uh, yeah, we'll talk to you in a second. Woo.
6: Text
0: with Dave. All right. So, Stefan, coming into the bonus show now. Thank you uh, to everyone who's downloading the podcast. Yeah, you um, guys do? We're going to keep this pretty brief. So this is our we've tested this a couple times, but this is our, our new thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, we're going to experiment a little bit with what we do in the bonus show to some extent. Um, so if you have any comments, thoughts, concerns, uh, if you don't like what we're doing, but you enjoy the additional content and have a better idea, well, then go ahead and tell us. Mm-hmm. Uh, but from now on, we're doing it. Yeah, there we go. Uh, so Stefan, you're gonna so we're gonna start off. so our general format has been texts with Dave, where you read texts of uh, that your brother who's listening generally to the show live and will send some thoughts. Sometimes they're incredibly insightful, sometimes they're a bit crazy. sometimes they're both. Mm. Let's find out what he had to say today.
3: Uh, so this' is actually from last week because last week we didn't do this because of the it was the, it was the, it was the show that we were trying to raise money for. Right. Um, it was the fundraising show. but uh, so this actually I think is 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 the best articulation of what we're trying to get at about the idea of having no hope. Uh, that, that we've come to, uh, which is why I saved it for the show. Uh, so, uh, which is if you were didn't hear last week's show, uh, we had a whole bit about how we had no use for hope. Uh, Kevin said it, we all laughed about it for a long time. Um, and then it went on, um, perhaps too much. Yeah. We it really, almost got awkward. There was so much laughter. Yeah. We really found that funny. Um, <laughs> but so here's, th- here's Dave's response to the idea of having no hope, uh, which is that in in many human beings despair leads to inaction or pointless outraged action uh, so it's not ho- so it's not hope that is useless but the idea of the inevitable flow of progress which is not hope but, na- but naivety naivete naivete that that being said true intelligent hope can be can only appear after personal crisis hope no hope they both lead to inaction if naivete is not addressed which i su- which i suppose which is which is what kevin's point is i suppose and i think that's actually uh, and i think that is kevin's point mm. uh which was that in reality the the, the what comes to what it comes down to is 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 not knowing what's actually happening is uh, mm. is 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 just thinking that things will be better or thinking that whatever you're doing will be fine because you actually don't know mm. uh in in and, and it's sort of speaking to the power of of, of knowing what's happened, like of, 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 knowledge, of, of, of understanding the world, of, of paying attention, uh, is, is, is whether, and what that level leads you to is, is, is what's actually important. Mm-hmm. Not say not, you know, blind optimism is as useless as blind pessimism, right? Maybe just open your goddamn eyes. <laughs> uh, so I have a, I have a hell of a, not a segue is not the right word, but I'm, I'm,
0: I'm going to take us on a little really brief journey. All right, let's do it. Uh, so it, and it 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 is in a, in a way answering uh, adding to that comment i mean i i already said that you know with the really the point there is not to not hope it's that don't don't think that hope is doing something don't confuse right. hoping for doing stuff right um so what well, my thing was, so the big problem with that is that, you know, so many people are misinformed, mm-hmm. right? And so I was thinking about that uh, while I was getting ready for the show today. And and I decided we're going to add this. Eventually, we're going to put together a list of crazy ideas we think are actually really good ideas, mm-hmm. but that nobody on the, pretty much nobody will think is a good idea, right. even though they are. Um, we have a few of those already, We uh, you and I have talked about, but here's one for today. Mm-hmm. So problem is people are misinformed. Big problem, part of that problem we talk about repeatedly on the show is that the mainstream media is basically a few giant uh, conglomerates, people. Who are generally rich and generally conservative-minded and generally donate to conservative cam- uh, campaigns, as we saw during this most recent Canadian election, where uh, something like 140 newspapers across Canada all printed a giant ad on the front page saying "Don't vote for Justin Trudeau" as if that was news and
3: well, not one rich dude who owns the newspapers' opinion man. Well, to be fair, they also that they ran the ad. They also then all post media organizations supported the conservative government. Um, and the most interesting thing about that ad is they changed the ad depending where they were and who they thought the actual biggest target was right so in some of the places where it 's more ndp focused it was don't it was that a vote for liberal or the NDP will cost you right And some of the other places it was just liberals they, yeah. they, they targeted that for the space uh, but yeah well like, yeah what 's ridiculous about this is like you put a gigantic ad for the conservatives on the front page of your newspaper and then inside of it is also your're just written not paid for ad for the conservative party yeah. you 've just admitted you 're not new so here 's my insane sounding, but I will stick buy it, Solution, Stefan, right. uh,
0: unless you talk me out of it by the end of this okay. show. Um, so, you know, an immediate New York reaction was something's corrupt, nationalize it. Nope, that's terrible, because the entire role of the media is to keep an eye on powerful, right? It's it's the way of, it's transparency. So we can't have government having their hands in in the media either. But clearly, this corporatist-based media is also not working. Here's my crazy idea for the day. Mm. You'll, you'll vet for me right now, Stefan. Right. What you actually do is you mandate that as something that is required for a functioning de- democratic society, that the media must exist, but that neither government nor corporations should have their end in it, uh, that have an overdue amount of influence on it. You should make a re- law in Canada requiring all news organizations must operate as not-for-profits. Uh, how would they stick their funding? Uh, they would do that, uh, through a variety of means, which I have yet to work out. Okay. Because <laughs> I, I, I mean, I do actually have a partial answer to that, right. but that's, that's a rabbit hole. Let's just look at right.
3: the meta at a, as, at a conceptual level. Um, I think assume I had a plan that made that work. Right. Um, I think that's, I don't know. Uh, I think like what, then, like, I think there's a lot of like, not about like a lot, like. Really, I, I kind of post media and media makes so little money and like news makes so little money anyways. They're practically not for profits already. Like we're not, you know, but ex- except for the fact that 400, you know,
0: newspapers can be owned by one guy, well, giving okay. you the illusion of a, of consensus when it's just one person who told their reporters to say something and it's printed in 400 newspapers and then everyone thinks, well, everybody's saying it, it must be true.
3: Okay. So that's a different question. It's a question of, 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 how, of, of how, um, uh, of who can own media. Uh, or, or 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 if or if media should respond to a board a larger board or or whatever. But I, I think there's but I think there's something to be said also about about public public broadcasting. You know, in that a truly arm's length. Public broadcaster can do can do one like no one's going to accuse. Or, well, people probably will. Everyone will accuse, but people are idiots. Uh, that like you know the CBC was in the hands of Harper during the time that Harper was you know cutting all their funding. Uh, I think there's I think I think a public, he was doing his best. Yeah, but I think a public broadcaster can do a uh, can 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 be very powerful and very. Uh, so I'm not sure if uh i'm not sure if there's that I, like and again so much of the, a lot of news it, i don't actually really care if it's a for-profit business you know uh, sports news who cares if, if 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 who's paying for that uh you know we, we let rogers own the team and the news that's literally what's happening right now they own like, it's like it's can you imagine, like it's it's ridiculous um and, and like you know, entertainment news who cares but again it's like so should we have actually interestingly perhaps the most perhaps the most interesting and who made this is a, a solution to I had a conversation recently about um, about foundations in the United States which are foundations entirely based around uh, just funding uh, internet funding independent research and funding independent journalists and they basically would do a ton of research they'd find a story and they'd sell it to a major a major thing and that's and they did that's what they did they were just independent researchers they would like track down stories and, and then sell them to major outlets to, to break basically okay. um, um, and I think that's I think if you if we really I think newspapers should stop just endorsing candidates. Like let's just, just get rid of that altogether. I think that's just stupid. Um and um and then and then have like if you have a strong enough like core of independent researchers that then use for profit news to sort of get their voice out there, I have no real issue with that. Um I think that there's you know, it's, it's ridiculous that post media owns 85% of the newspapers you're going to read. It like, that's, that's terrifying. And you know, if the only, and really the only alternative that is the Toronto star practically, it's like, it's, which, you know, again, has its own faults. So it's, we're not, we're not living in a, in a bastion of great, uh, of great, of great massive me- media. Um, in, in fact, uh, if I can just uh, stick in as well, there was a, there's
0: a organization, uh, maybe journalists without borders, mm-hmm. but I, don't quote me on that. Um, there is an organization that assesses a global organization that assesses media freedom across the country. And many Canadians, I think would be very shocked. Uh, we covered this on the show years ago, uh, to find out that Canada is actually
3: way down the list. Mm. We,
0: we relative to other countries have an incredibly restricted media and that's not just under Harper. That's in general. Right. Yeah.
3: Well, it it has to do with, yeah,
0: there's, and and part of it's not just from, from government and this is the other thing I want to throw in mm-hmm. as well, which is the other part of the problem. One of them is that they're all, you know, owned by the same people. Right. And yeah. so it doesn't divide diversity. The other problem is that by making them for profit Uh, That also means that they are beholden to advertisers Mm. and it is very, very hard to, you know, as an organization that makes a you know, basically all of its money off advertising to start doing an expose, for instance, on uh, Nestle stealing our water, which is another story we didn't have time Mm. for to cover uh, recently and all these things. If if those are the people who pay your bills and so it creates an extreme downward pressure to know, Okay, well, we can't talk about politics, uh, you know, at best or we're just going to endorse candidates uh, as if we're not supposed to be news Mm -hmm. Uh, or we're, we're, you know, at the behest, even if they had the best of intentions, we're at the behest of multinational corporations They'd be like, Hey, how would you like to not get the hundred thousand dollars in advertising revenue this month? Uh, maybe you shouldn't publish that expose about us. Uh, I think these are serious problems for our democracy. Uh, so whether or not my solution addresses those problems, Mm -hmm. I think these are incredibly legitimate problems. And part of the reason why we can't have the conversations that we're having and, and, and why here's one of the only places that you'll hear conversations like this.
3: Yeah. I think that's, yeah, it's, uh, it, it takes me a while to realize. I forget that I live in a bubble m- more often than not, which is probably a bad thing. But like mm-hmm. number, like you know, when you get your media, when you get your when you get your news from uh, from from online sources and and independence or something like that, that your news is just so different. It's just, it's just, you know, and then you get, and then you stay, like I I had a hilarious bastion of uh, like, just dump of text messages from a friend of mine who's in the States during the Paris attacks, who's watching CNN, and they were like, this is the worst thing I've ever seen. Why is this happening? Yeah, and and and, but meeting the the media coverage is not well. The events obviously were also awful, but like in that sort of like the way it was being covered is just or like whenever a plane goes down, watch CNN lose its fucking mind. Like it's just you forget you forget if you're not paying if you're not tapped into sort of you know cable news shows that you're you're living in a weird bubble of getting your news from like relatively small sources, and it's a and it's it's you're you it's hard to really assess exactly how to fix that.
0: Oh. Well, I think that's a good place to wrap it up. Uh, so, as a as a as a place of wrap up, Stefan, I'm going to see if you follow my uh, Simpsons reference here. Right. And see if you can follow along with me on the fly here, uh, which is that uh, you know we can. I feel like we can agree to disagree about my solution for the media.
3: <laughs> I don't agree to that. Right. <laughs> I didn't know the line, but I, I, I you're do supposed like to say neither did I. <laughs> neither do I. Damn it! All right, Steph. Sorry. Stephen fails this week. I failed.
0: Uh, but you know what I'm going to do? Uh, vote for the news is up. I'm also going to put a poll up uh, okay. whether whether or not people like that idea. If you're interested, if you want to put your opinion on that, you can also add a comment. I'll leave it up there mm-hmm. on the vote page of our home site today. There will be uh, until next week. We'll leave a post. Uh, do what do you think of forcing uh, media organizations to be not for profits uh, as an idea? Well, we'd love to hear your comments, and you can come into the vote page and vote along with vote for the news. Other than that, have a good Green Week, folks, and uh, thanks so much for listening. Yeah, thanks for listening, guys. <laughs>